Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we come to your word now, that you will that you will guide the words I say, and that you will open our hearts to receive what is true from your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And my apologies that it's not the passage you've gotten prepared for, but since I only found out after seven this morning and had to be there for eight o'clock church, you've got to take an old one from the computer this morning. <laughs> it's the best I could manage. So once upon a time, there was a manager being interviewed for a new position. My department's turned a profit every quarter for the last five years, the candidate says. I've never had a personnel problem, and I've always gotten superior performance reviews. Very impressive, the interviewers replied. And what's your greatest weakness? I do tend to exaggerate. Being qualified or appropriately skilled to do something is very important. No one's going to go to a doctor who hasn't been to uni and got a medical degree and knows what they're talking about. No one wants to get on a plane where the pilot hasn't been properly trained and certified and everything else. No non-swimmers should be on the life-saving team. No one wants someone who's tone deaf to sing in an opera. That would be comic opera at a whole new level. Yet oddly, when it comes to approaching God, a lot of people seem to think they're qualified. Let's see what the psalm has to say. Who is God? The psalmist asserts that God is the owner of the whole world by right of having created it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Right at the beginning, the scene is being set. Who is God? God is the creator. He owns this world by virtue of having made it. So how do we interact with him? Who could approach God? This psalm is supposed to have been written when David brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. And he goes on to ask, who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who can stand in his holy place? Who had the right to carry the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem? Remember the story? The ark, which was, had all the holy objects in it, had been captured by the Philistines ages ago. But wherever they took it, sickness followed. And in the end, they gave up and returned it to Israel, where it was left to language in a place called Kiriath-Jerim. Now David wants to bring it to Jerusalem and bring the worship of God back to the center of Israel's life. But he forgot to actually check how God wanted the ark to be handled. So they just loaded the ark onto a cart and set off. Result? Disaster. When an ox stumbled and the ark started to slip, a priest called Uzzah put out his hand to steady it, as you would without even thinking. And he was struck dead for his presumption. You don't take a holy God for granted. So eventually they got back to God's instructions and brought in the ark carried by the Levites on poles which they had over their shoulders and did it the way that God had said. And the ark came in and there was great and wonderful rejoicing. Wow, the ark has finally returned to Jerusalem. This is where it's supposed to be. Now we can all come here to worship God. But the whole incident begs the question of who can dare approach a holy God? 
Who can come into his presence? The temple in Jewish thought was where heaven and earth intersected. Who can bring the sacrifice there? Here David describes the person who may approach God. He must have clean hands. His outward behavior must be perfect. So it's a bit more involved than just using the sanitizer. A pure heart. His innermost character must be perfect. He must not lift up his soul to what is false. There must be no idolatry. His vertical relationship to God must be perfect. And he does not swear deceitfully. He must be transparently honest in all his doings, in all his horizontal relationships with other people. The one who meets these requirements does not find death and judgment, but he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Even David did not qualify. He was a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer. It's a dilemma. Who in all creation is worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord? It may remind you of another scene in Revelation 5. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he could open the scroll and its seven seals. For here is the twist. God himself enters our human space. God become man, namely Jesus, does what none of us with our dirty hands and impure hearts are able to do. He ascends the hill of the Lord to the place of sacrifice on our behalf. But he does not do it in his role as the Lord of heaven and earth, to whom all our worship is due. He does not even do it in his role as our glorious high priest. He does it and this is the thing that shakes the very foundations of the universe. He does it as the sacrifice. The Lord of all the earth becomes the most vulnerable one, the outcast and the victim. He takes his clean hands and his pure heart, and he stands in our place. And all our dirtiness, impurity, and falsehood is carried by him. He is mocked. He is ridiculed, he is diminished, he is tortured, he is abused, he is killed. He is the God who brought, fought the loneliest, hardest, most important battle ever fought, nailed to a cross, forsaken by the Father, under a dark and dreadful sky. He fought against sin and death and overcame them. Truly, the Lord mighty in battle. No one is more powerless than a dead man. But of course, this is not the end of the story. For God to enter our world is not an invasion, but his lawful sovereign right. He made it. He owns it. When the holy ark comes to the city, the very gates should rejoice, telling the gates to lift up their heads, can also be interpreted as fling them wide. But there's also another symbol going on here. 
It means the shame has been taken away. When you're ashamed, your head goes down. You droop. You don't look anyone in the eye. But when your shame is removed, your head lifts up. You can stand upright again. And God has taken away our shame. He's the Lord mighty in battle for all eternity. He's also the all-powerful. But now he's a conqueror in a whole new way. He's conqueror of death and hell, the resurrected Jesus. Fascinatingly, this psalm was appointed to be read in the Jewish temple on the first day of the week, that is, Sunday. So they were reading these words in the temple at the very time that Jesus was entering Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. Were they rejoicing at the coming of their king? Did they recognize what was happening? Superficially, yes. People love a spectacle, and they were getting all worked up and shouting Hosanna. You know the story, the palm branches, the cloaks laid down on the ground. But just a few days later, what were the crowds of Jerusalem shouting? Crucify him. These people, who would never have dreamed of coming into the Holy of Holies in the temple, were willing to lay rough hands on something far more holy, Jesus, the Son of God, and desecrate him. This was not the king's victorious entry. More, though, they were singing that psalm the following Sunday at the time that Jesus had just risen from the dead, proclaiming the truth even though they did not know it. The battle is over, and the king of glory is the mighty conqueror. And even more, he shared that victory with us, so that clothed in his righteousness, we are now people who can approach God. We can come to him freely and pray, because Jesus has made a way for us. But though he's risen, most of the world is still as oblivious as they were when the miracle of his birth occurred. But this is not the end of the story either. Forty days later, he ascended to heaven, and the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem were flung wide to welcome the king back. Can you imagine what that was like? Jesus' homecoming to heaven? Can you imagine the excitement and the glory? And even that is not the end of the story. One day, the triumphant king will return to earth, and no one will be able to ignore him. The trumpet will sound, the dead will arise, and the king of glory will come in. We should be excited about that. That's something to look forward to. The story is told of a man called Joshua Bell, and one morning in Washington, he emerged from the metro and positioned himself against a wall alongside a waste bin. It was no one you'd give a second glance to in that uh, scenario. He was dressed in jeans, ordinary jeans, and a long-sleeved T-shirt, and from a small case, he removed a violin, placing the open case at his feet with a few coins for seed money. He began to play. For the next 45 minutes, there at the metro station, on January the 12th, 2007, Bell played Mozart and Schubert as over 1,000 people streamed by. Most hardly took any notice. If they'd paid attention, they might have recognized the young man for the world-renowned violinist that he is. They also might have noted that the violin he was playing 
was a Stradivarius worth $3 million. Just three days later, Joshua Bell sold out Boston Symphony Hall. The very cheapest seats were $100, and you can imagine what it cost for the, the good seats. In the subway, Bell reaped about $32 from 27 people who put a coin in. It was an experimental project organised by the Washington Post newspaper to see how people responded. Doesn't the world treat Jesus the same way? He's the king of glory. He's their only hope of salvation. Holding out his hands and they walk straight by. They look at him and they just see a nice guy who healed a few sick people and blessed children and told people to love each other. That's so often how the world describes him. Or they just see a man who hung on a cross and see defeat and a lost cause. But just like the people who walked past that violinist with their ignorance and preoccupations, they are ignoring the Lord of glory who died for them, who rose for them, and who one day will come back. Let's not be too blind. Let's not be too preoccupied. And let's... Remind others not to be too blind and not to be too preoccupied because this is Jesus we're talking about. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'll open our eyes and to all the little ways in which day by day we, we turn aside from what should be the center of our, our thinking and understanding and just preoccupy ourselves with all the other things. And we pray for others that they will open their eyes, that they will see Jesus for who he truly is, and that they will come to worship him and be his own. We ask it in his name. Amen.